Hello, and welcome to GovGuys, a podcast brought to you by two teachers who did not get Taylor Swift tickets. I'm Mr. Hertzler. And I'm Mr. Crowder. And today we're going to be talking about the executive branch of the United States. That's right. It's time to talk about the president. Ooh, the president. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way. Who was the best fictional president of all time? Well, I got to go with President Ford. Harrison Ford, that is. His James Marshall had a bold foreign policy initiative, and he actually followed through with it. Air Force One is a crazy good movie. It has me crying red, white, and blue tears. My favorite version of Die Hard, not called Die Hard. Ooh, so next question. Is Die Hard actually a Christmas movie? Hurts, sir. Now's not the time to get political. Who's your favorite movie president? I got to go with Thomas Whitmore from Independence Day, a true leader who resisted a global alien invasion, along with Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum. Uh, Ooh, uh, life life, uh, finds a way. That's the wrong movie, Crowder. All right. Well, still a great film. Yeah, the 90s were a really good time for movies. And movie presidents. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, enter we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Welcome to the Gov Guys Podcast, Episode 4 The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, The Executive Branch. So the second article of the Constitution outlines the requirements and obligations of the executive branch. When we think about the executive branch, we think about the president and vice president. But it takes way more than just these two people to successfully pull off all the duties of the office. That's right. And even from our very first president, George Washington, the executive branch by default has required an increasing number of people to execute the office. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's talk about what it takes to be president. You know, things like money, an inflated ego, super old. Well, well, maybe, but let's look at the Constitution stuff itself. So we're looking at Article 2, Section 1, and it outlines the requirements for the office. You have to be at least 35 years old. You have to be a natural-born citizen. And you have to have lived within the United States for at least 14 years. What do you think? Yeah, I remember that time when everybody was like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger you know, mm-hmm. wanted to be president. And everybody's like, yo, that'd be awesome. I was like, nope, he can't do it. Sorry. I mean, this is back when he's governor of California. Remember that? Yeah, the governor. Get to the ballot box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, you know, the first section also outlines the president can serve four-year terms. And it was a precedent for the chief executive to serve two terms. But that hasn't always been the case. That's right. George Washington very well could have served as president for life, taking on a role that many in his own inner circle wanted. But Washington made an, at the time, unprecedented choice to leave after two terms, thus reinforcing the revolutionary ideas that our country was working towards, raising the prospect that the president was not just a king by a different name. Yeah, and that's a huge deal. The precedent of only serving two terms has only been broken by one person, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And to be fair, There was nothing written at the time to say that you couldn't do that, but Roosevelt runs and wins four different presidential elections. He served as the president of the United States from March of 1933 all the way up until his death of April of 1945. He won broad support in those years and was voted in an office with large majorities of the vote each time, but he definitely had some opponents. 
Yeah, and plenty of people during the year has uh, tenured argued that Roosevelt's decision to run for a third and ultimately fourth term was a violation of U.S. principles. There are political cartoons of him at the time uh, marking up the U.S. Constitution, wearing a crown on his head, and so on and so forth. But that all changes with the 22nd Amendment. Not long after Roosevelt's death, a constitutional amendment to limit presidential tenure was introduced and ratified in 1951. This new amendment limited a president to two terms in office or up to 10 years. Kind of that rare instance where you theoretically could be the vice president of somebody who passes or otherwise, you know, leaves office after two years. You could theoretically finish their term and then complete two whole terms of your own. Yeah, that could have applied to like uh, Lyndon B. Johnson or uh, Gerald Ford. I think Theodore, that applied to him. Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt, yep. Another part of Section 1 that changed a little over time is the Electoral College. Fun fact, the president has never been directly elected by the people of the United States. When you go to vote for president, you are actually voting for electors from your state that will then vote for the president of your state collectively. Yeah, at least in theory. We'll talk more about this in the future episode, so we'll just keep you on the edge of your seat. Hang on to that idea for now. Anyway, in the original Constitution, electors would vote two times for president. There was usually a disparity between who got the most votes and who got the second most votes. And this would decide who was the president and who was the vice president. Yeah, that's a pretty wild system to think about. Like, you know, uh, in this context, Donald Trump's vice president would have been Hillary Clinton. And under this rule, uh, you know, Joe Biden's vice president today would be Donald Trump. Yeah, and that was one of the earliest constitutional blunders that Congress fixed. It was all thrown into chaos in the election of 1800 when Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr both emerged from the election with the same number of electoral votes. In fact, the House of Representatives had, a, had to take on this first disputed election and ultimately awarded Jefferson the presidency and Burr the vice presidency. Yeah, this was the only only the country's fourth presidential election, and we're already struggling with the election system the founders designed. And there was a lot of scrambling behind the scenes that made the Jefferson-Burr crisis come to a conclusion. Since the Federalist Party's choice of John Adams lost in the election of 1800, like, you know, absolutely lost, wiped out, uh, members of his party initially worked against Jefferson, who was their biggest Democratic-Republican rival. The most prominent remaining member of the Federalists, Alexander Hamilton, actually spoke up in Jefferson's defense. Now, these two guys hated each other. They were rivals in Washington's cabinet, and they fundamentally disagreed on everything. But Hamilton saw Jefferson as a better choice than Burr. Hamilton thought Burr was nothing more than kind of an overly ambitious political opportunist. Uh, and so Hamilton's lobbying effort uh, in Congress effectively hands Jefferson the presidency. And in return, Hamilton's rewarded with an early morning duel with the vice president. The 12th Amendment goes into effect prior to the 1804 election. From that point forward, the president and vice president run as a ticket, meaning they run together. Burr, knowing he's not going to be Jefferson's first choice for VP, decides to run for governor for New York instead. <laughs> but Hamilton's a hater. Uh, he continues to write these absolute grilling critiques of Burr. And so Burr does what any logical person would do at this time. Challenges Hamilton to a duel. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That was nice. Burr and Hamilton meet on July 11th, 1804, and Vice President Burr kills Hamilton. Now, that's some political intrigue. You know, I would actually pay to watch pay-per-view of, of politicians dueling, wouldn't you? I think it would probably sell out pretty pretty quickly here. 
Um, yeah, vice vice presidents aren't supposed to be super controversial. Like modern day, you've got Dick Cheney accidentally shooting a guy on a hunting trip. Uh, Joe Biden saying some, you know, R-rated language on a hot mic. Dan Quayle failing to spell the word potato. But like Burr killed a guy. The 12th Amendment is to generally quote Joe Biden a big deal. And again, it makes the vice president and the president candidates run together, which makes for a more efficient executive branch. Yeah, and sometimes it plays a big role in, you know, president's success. Yeah, absolutely. You know, your choice of VP can have a little bit of an effect uh, on your numbers. Moving on, let's look at the roles and responsibilities of a president. Some of these are specifically written in the Constitution, and some aren't. Yeah, so we're going to start with ones that are specifically written down. And the very first duty that's assigned to the president is that of commander-in-chief. While Congress has the ability to declare war... The president is actually the person who's in charge of, you know, sending troops abroad and, and for all intents and purposes, conducting a war. Uh, you know, this includes meeting with generals, making decisions, some of those really tough, you know, uh, decisions that can make or break a presidency uh, are made by the president in, in terms of military action. You know, going and visiting the troops and you know, giving these rallying speeches to get the country to go to war or to uh, encourage a time of peace. This is all something that the commander in chief does. Yeah. And historically, you see presidents who were former military leaders be very successful in elections like Ulysses S. Grant, George Washington, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. So this military role that the president plays has, has played a huge part in just the selection process of, of many presidents. Yeah, historically true. Uh, not as much in recent history, but you definitely do have this precedent, so to speak, about, you know, military heroes going on to become presidents. Correct. And I, I think that that plays a big role in leadership. Uh, the next role is administrator in chief. All right. Um, the president we, we were talking about earlier, you know, there is more than just the president and the vice president. There's also this this large section of the executive branch known as bureaucracy. That, that plays a big role in doing the day-to-day -day issues of the president. And it's up to the president to keep these bureaucratic agencies in line and make sure that he is delegating the right laws and, and rulings to these different bureaucratic agencies um, that, and that they're following his will and, and the will of the people. Yeah, within the bureaucracy, you're talking about, you know, uh, Three million people, give or take, uh, that make up the bureaucracy. And, you know, none of them are elected. For the vast majority of them, they're day-to-day -day people who go to work just like you and me, uh, you know, fill out paperwork, uh, turn in check stubs, so on and so forth. But, you know, some of these people have been in the bureaucracy their entire life, uh, and they have a significant role in helping the day-to-day -day operations of the government. Beyond that, you have the president taking on the role of chief diplomat uh, because America is just one of hundreds of countries in the world. Chief diplomat has the job of being the face of America abroad. They may name ambassadors to represent us in countries around the world. They may act uh, and negotiate on our behalf at, at treaties. Uh, so the, the role of chief diplomat is going to be really important for U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, we want people to like America. So it's always good to have a good, friendly face, be able to talk with these other political officials around the world. The next power deals, again, kind of on the same line as administrator-in-chief, but chief executive. So executing the laws. 
you know, the president is the one that has to sign laws into to action. And then it's his job to enforce those laws. And the way he enforces them is by important, appointing cabinet members, you know, into his inner circle. It's kind of, it sounds like it's conspiracy theory, but in his circle. Um, and, and and he divvies out those laws to the correct people to make sure that those laws are enforced. He also has to appoint federal judges to district courts, but also to the Supreme Court to make sure that those laws are are judged fairly and, and, and correctly. The, these uh, administrative appointments are sometimes really high stakes, especially when you're talking about Supreme Court, you know, nine members that are going to have a huge, you know, decades old legacy on, you know, the country's history. And and sometimes presidents don't even get to appoint Supreme Court judges. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really kind of a, a weird roll of the die. A good example is Barack Obama names two during his eight years. Trump names three in his four years as president. You never really know how much impact you're going to have on those courts, especially at the Supreme Court level. An important thing to note, we're going to talk about the judicial system, so I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. You know, we're talking about around 870 federal positions all across the country. And in a presidential term, if you can name two or 300 judges, likewise, you're going to have a huge impact on the judicial system for well beyond your four to eight years in office. Another role the president is going to take on uh, almost borderline between an actually written role and one they just kind of have assumed over time is chief legislator. So the part that concerns us in the Constitution is that from time to time, the president is meant to send a report on the State of the Union to Congress. And the State of the Union address has become a really big primetime affair in this country where let's go on and say millions of people tune in to watch what the president's goals and initiatives are going to be for the next year. It's important to remember that the president himself doesn't have any real control over what the legislative branch does, but they can play a huge role in trying to get public persuasion behind his agendas and initiatives to try to get people to influence Congress to take action. Yeah, it's important for the president to make his policy positions known. He's not really telling Congress. He's just letting them know what he's thinking. Um, and, and that's important, especially letting your base, your, your, your party know what you're thinking, especially in the public. Outside of giving the State of the Union address, you're going to see the president going around and giving these kind of stump speeches right after the State of the Union address to try to get people to see why his agenda is a good idea. Again, the president doesn't have any control over spending or laws outside of maybe playing cheerleader. But by by doing this, he can put a lot of pressure on Congress to take certain actions and try to support his legislative agenda, even though he doesn't have a direct hand in voting on it. Yeah, for example, with the budget, he can suggest spending right, and send it to Congress, and then Congress can approve or disprove what, what the president wants to do with that. Yeah, you know, the president's going to send a yearly budget plan to Congress, and, it, and it's never going to look exactly like what the president hands you, especially if you have divided government. But more often than not, it's framework for how he wants to move forward, and Congress can choose to take it or not. All right, another interesting power of the president is the the power of the pardon, right? The president um, will use Normally, the pardon, you really see it in the news about the time of either re-election um, or when the president's 
getting ready to go out of office. All right. The president will pardon certain individuals. Sometimes it's controversial, sometimes not. Uh, it, it, it just depends on how the president wants to look leaving office. Pardon power definitely has some pros and cons to it because explaining this to students is wild because you're like, so a president can just say that you're good and you, you know, you don't face any consequences. And yeah, no, that that's, that's exactly it. You know, obviously there is a difference between the, the, the court and the court of public opinion. You know, if you're out there on the street and the president pardoned you for X, Y, Z, that doesn't mean that you don't get nasty looks or this, that, and the other. But the president has a check on the judicial branch by essentially having this pardon power to excuse criminals of felonies. One of the more infamous pardons in, in well, I'm going to say recent years, but I guess it was only really in my lifetime, was um, what Bill Clinton pardoning his his brother over, I think it was like a DUI. And obviously hugely controversial, but, you know, a right that the president gets to do in their last couple years in office. And usually this is, as Hertzler said, during that lame duck session where, you know, you're on your way out. And at this point in time, you're not really tearing up a bunch of your political capital to pull this off. Yeah. Another very famous pardon is Gerald Ford pardoning um, Richard Nixon after Watergate. A lot of people resented Gerald Ford for doing so, of, of basically making Nixon above the law. Yeah, a lot of people, fair or not, I think a lot of historians have said, you know, that probably cost Gerald Ford any chance of re-election. Right. Or, sorry, getting elected ever. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't re-elected. Yeah, that's the fun, fun fact about Gerald Ford is he is the only president who has gotten into office without ever being voted into that position. He was the Speaker of the House from Michigan, uh, and and Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, actually also ended up in some hot water not long before Watergate. So Nixon was operating without a vice president for a while. And then, you know, as soon as Nixon started having the Watergate scandal kind of descend around him, he finds himself without a vice president. So the Speaker of the House, Gerald Ford, actually assumes the role of president. And Gerald Ford fills out the rest of Nixon's term. And after that, never gets elected into office again. Uh, loses to Jimmy Cotta. And uh, yeah, fun fun presidential history fact. Fun fact. Also, Gerald Ford, remembered for what, Hertzler? Oh, I can't remember. Uh, Gerald Ford falling down the stairs, getting onto or off of Air Force One. And, uh, you know, very early on, this is one of those things that Saturday Night Live picked up. And Chevy Chase played Gerald Ford and would always end his skits by like falling over. Like he's decorating the Christmas tree and he just like completely takes it out and, you know, falls from eight feet in the air straight onto his back. And, you know, but, you know, that's another, we'll talk about it, of course, but that's just mass media not helping the president's case at all. Very famously recently, um, you know, during COVID, we all watched the, the adventures of Joe Exotic. Uh, there was a large group of people trying to push, um, for Joe Exotic to be released from jail. And fun fact, they were actually protesting Joe Exotic's release on January 6th, and they actually left early before everything happened. <laughs> the more you know. Uh, right. The next role of the president isn't official by any means, but it's definitely a role that he's taken on uh, more and more as time has gone on, and it's chief of state. This really dances across a lot of different roles that the president has, but it's, it is kind of being the face of the country, being the head of the country, right? Uh, so obviously some of that works along the lines of, you know, chief diplomat, like you represent 
the United States at the G20 uh, and this, that, and the other. But you also do things like photo ops. You go out and shake hands. You give congressional medals of honor. You give presidential medals of freedom. You lay wreaths at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. These these kind of moments that are more ceremonial, based in tradition, things like that, are roles that are taken on by the chief of state. It's kind of an interesting power. Yeah, there's some cool historical ones. Um, I think my favorite, and uh, Crowder will agree with me, is George Bush throwing out a pitch at the uh, 2001 World Series. Uh, that's in New that's York. Uh, that's top five presidential moments. Right. For sure. he, not only did he, um, you know, stand out there in front of millions of people, he threw a strike, like, like dead yeah. on strike. Yeah, it was, it was good. All right. Speaking of of 9/11, a little bit, we're going to move on to another. Uh, unofficial role and that's crisis manager. So we like to have, we were talking about, you know, with military, having a leader there, um, crisis manager is important, um, role of the president because it's, it's one of those where you need to see that we have a strong leadership, um, in charge, uh, during times of crisis, you know, after a hurricane or, or a natural disaster, you'll see the president go out, you'll see him, you know, you know, walking around, talking with the people, uh, handing out supplies, uh, coming up with ideas to help uh, try to push the federal government to help these areas. So, so crisis manager is also a very important role and kind of controversial. We we talked about it in the federalism episode. Some people don't really want the federal government getting involved, but other people do. Crisis manager is kind of an interesting role because you know this is one that I think ties a lot to presidential approval. Even despite people's feelings about federalism, you almost feel like you're expecting the president to be there hugging people, shaking hands, mourning with people when there's uh, a hurricane, a mass shooting, a terrorist attack like 9-11. George Bush gets a lot of points uh, historically with how he handled the immediate crisis of 9-11 by, you know, going to the site of the of the Twin Towers uh, and and giving a really rousing speech about yeah the speech you know, on the megaphone yeah you know like we're we hear you and the world's going to hear you soon here the world's going to hear from all of us soon something along those lines but he's also discredited as well for his yeah. response to uh, Hurricane Katrina absolutely uh, you know just as there's that famous speech at, at the the Twin Towers there's a famous photo of George Bush kind of flying over the Katrina wreckage and. You know, it's it's almost as if people saw in his body language that he wasn't really into it. He wasn't really supportive. He wasn't really doing, wasn't really interested in doing a whole lot to help the people that were affected by Katrina. So, so another unofficial role is public policy. It's really important to know that public policy really is controlled by the Senate and the House, but the president is a big proponent of the the outcome of policy. Um, nobody blames the House or the Senate for public policy, but the president and his ideas and anything that goes wrong, um, really, this is not even official duty. It's just the president is in charge of controlling the way policy is controlled, if that makes sense. And it really plays a big part in a president's success. So the president could be a really good chief diplomat. He could be a really good executive president. But if he if policy doesn't line up um, to what is going on, it could it could really leave a mark. Uh, one big example is H.W. Bush, uh, who's, you know, famous. We're not going to raise any taxes. 
but then taxes were raised during his presidency. You, you see how that public policy really influenced and, and cost him an election. Public policy is one of those things that's not incredibly sexy, so to speak, Like, uh, but the president's main job really is enforcing the law and executing the law. And a- as you said, very, very well, actually, you know, he's not in charge of passing laws. He's not in charge of X, Y, or Z, but he is given a lot of credit and or blame uh, for how those laws are carried out. And so it's really important when he gets to the the cabinet delegating those authorities well so that laws are implemented and carried out in a way that is favorable with the public. Yeah, Taylor Swift said it best, you know, you know, when you have a divided government, it's it's hard to fight when the fight ain't fair, you know. When when you don't have a a government that supports your policy and then you get blamed for them not supporting your policy, it 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 hurts um your reputation as his president. And and that brings us to the last unofficial role of the president, but one that's very obvious, I think, and that is role of party leader. When the president is running for office, he is the leader of the party. He is the first person that you are going to see and think of, you know, the Republican Party or think of Donald Trump. Or right now, if you think of the Democratic Party, you're probably thinking of Joe Biden. They are the face of the party, just as president is the face of the country in a lot of ways. You you think of the president or the most recent president as the representative of the party. Uh, and there comes a lot of pros and cons with that for sure because when it comes to an election if you have a really unpopular president the party's going to suffer and vice versa if you have a very popular president the party should do well yeah love him or hate him donald trump was a very good uh party leader you know using twitter to promote other politicians to be voted in because because we were just talking about divided government you want to promote your party and get your party's representatives voted into the house that way you can control public policy, you can control legislation. Um, If it's the Senate, you can control your appointments uh, to the Supreme Court or to the cabinet. So it's important to promote your party. Think of some of the presidents that were really effective party leaders. You tend to think of ones who are seen as really good communicators, you know, like a Ronald Reagan or a JFK or, or, or maybe a Barack Obama type person that is going to be asked by everybody to come give stump speeches, you know, come help me get elected, come speak at a fundraiser, come shake, you know, hands and kiss babies uh, in my state so people support me and therefore support you. So the role of party leader is definitely a really important one, especially when you're talking about the nomination process. Hertz, I think real quick, we probably should talk about the conventions. Yeah, so every four years for a presidential election, um, each party will have their own convention where they'll meet in a city. Recently, um, Charlotte hosted, uh, was it the Republican or Democratic convention? I can't remember. Uh, one. Both. And uh, it was 2012. Was uh, the, it, it hosted the the Democrats. 2020, it hosted Republicans. Yeah, I think that was right. Yeah. So Charlotte, for example, um, hosted both conventions um, where the parties will come together, basically a, a rally for the whole party. Yeah, uh, they'll nominate their presidential candidate, but they'll also have speeches trying to um, and 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 groups discussing public policy um, and try to get the party on the same page. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really this. Uh, well, in certain circles anyway, it's definitely this all like 
tune in event and see what happens. And it's kind of this prime time. Like if you want to see a bunch of people do the Macarena, uh, you should check out the 1992 or was it 96? <laughs> yeah. It, it's worthwhile. I, I 100% assure you, if you want to see Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton lead <laughs> a, a, a delegation of Democrats trying to do the Macarena, it is must see TV. I was about um, to say it's like Comic Con without the craziness, but never mind. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but it, it is this, it is this, you know, week long event where you have to tune in. Each night has its theme of different policies or different, you know, agenda items that yeah, they want to get done. Different speakers. A lot of them are running for office too. So, like, very famously in 2004, Barack Obama gave a speech when he was running for Senate in in Illinois, and you know that was his kind of coming out to the the American populace. You know, this John Kerry was the presidential nominee for the Democrats and he wasn't necessarily hugely inspiring, but a lot of people got a you know their first look at Barack Obama giving one of these speeches on, you know, I think it was like a Thursday night. And they're like, ooh, I like this guy. Fun fact, you can read about it in your AP government textbook as if it actually just happened. Yes. So all our book is <laughs> yeah, a AP government textbook. The reason we're not using it is it's like, what's going to happen when we add in Alaska and Hawaii? <laughs> but yeah, conventions are important to, to the president because it's where the president rallies his party behind him, right? Um, famously, uh, throughout history, these conventions have, you know, shown division. What is it, the 1860 Democratic Convention where it, it's basically split the Democratic Party? You had the Northern Democrats and the Southern Democrats. Like most modern day conventions, they know who the nominee is going to be. Like it's been clear for at least several weeks, if not several months. You know, it's no surprise. You have the convention 100% geared toward getting one person elected. But that's not always the case historically. You know, in some conventions, it has been very controversial as to who the nominee is going to be. And they go through a roll call of states and the states offer their support behind one candidate or another. And ultimately, once those votes are tallied, they figure out who their nominee are. And usually that roll call of states is, as I said, pretty much just answering what we already know. Uh, but historically, it has been a very controversial, close uh, vote between several different candidates. And at times, as Hertzler pointed out, you know, you see a split in the party between people. You know, they're going to support one candidate regardless. Yeah, you have the the split in the Democratic Party in 1860. And then I think you had it again in the... Ni 1968. Not, yeah, 1968. You had what was it? The Dixiecrat split... I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's going to be fair, though. Uh, you know, 1968, you have people who in the Democratic Party who wouldn't have been excited about the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Acts. Uh, you're also going to have a large contingent of people who are already uh, very anti-war. Uh, and on top of that whole thing, you know, LBJ had decided not to run for another term. So, you know, the 1968 presidential nomination for the Democrats was was a huge mess and probably a lot of the reason why Nixon wins. Correct. Just like how Lincoln's able to win in 1860 because you have the Democratic Party's vote split. All right. Um, moving on to controversial topics. Are we going to talk about the impeachment process? I think we should. All right. Um, because it's become very common over the last few years, we, we've seen it. You know, and, and you know, wait, Donald wait, Trump's presidency. I, I, well, I, I think it's fair to put it this way. You know, in terms of impeachment power of the president, we saw it once in the country's first 200 years. Correct. 
We've seen it three times in the Since. last in the last thirty. To be fair, we could have saw it another time, but yeah. Nixon resigned before it got that far. Yeah, absolutely. Nixon very likely would have been the first president to not only get impeached, but be removed from office. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, Hertzer, what is the impeachment process? Well, if you were with us for our congressional episode, we talked a little bit about how the House and the Senate both have their their roles in uh, the impeachment process. Remember, the House is the one that basically investigates and basically just suggests that the president has done something egregious or or any high-ranking official has done something, you know, wrong and it needs to be investigated further. And they can call for the impeachment or the investigation of that official. Um, remember, you only need 51% of the House representatives to officially impeach a president. Um, and then once that vote is taken out, then, then that issue is then sent to the Senate where the Senate basically acts as the jury for, for the impeachment trial. And they will bring in evidence. They will bring in testimonies. They will interview people. They will they will look at everything. They'll break it up into committees. And then they will vote whether or not they think that official should be removed. Um, it's a little bit different uh, in the Senate. You need two-thirds of the Senate to officially remove a politician. Uh, um, but if, if you get that two-thirds, then, then the president could be removed. Yeah, and as I mentioned before, we've never actually gotten there in, in our history, but we we've come close a few times. As you mentioned before with Nixon, that you know, that likely would have gone that way if he had chosen to stay in office uh despite everyone around him saying, you know, there's no way forward, right? Um but I think the closest we came to actually removing a president from office was Andrew Johnson. Correct, the first president to ever be impeached as well. Good old Andrew Johnson represent North Carolina well. Um, Andrew Johnson, remember, was removed for basically his lack of involvement in the Reconstruction. He basically had this very loose Reconstruction policy that didn't really punish the South. And the radical Republicans, you know, hated that yeah. um, and, and wanted to have him removed from office and, and put in a president that's going to enforce Reconstruction. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, the importance of choosing a good vice president, Abraham Lincoln uh, wanted to get voted into office for a second term, and he wanted to kind of uh, go to the middle a little bit with his choice. And he chose Andrew Johnson, who, by all measures, was the last Democrat left in the Congress representing Tennessee or North Carolina. Both states tried not to claim him, but, you know, there it is. <laughs> Andrew Johnson in regards to Reconstruction, started firing a bunch of cabinet secretaries that Lincoln had obviously chosen during his presidency in a way to try to get a much softer Reconstruction plan put in place for the South to, you know, rejoin the Union. Uh, and the Radical Republicans very much said, you know, hey, if you fire one more guy, we're, going, we're coming after you. We're going to get rid of you. And he called their bluff. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to fire this guy. And... <laughs> They impeach him and come very close to yeah, it was, it was getting him out. Close. It was one, it was two votes or something like that. But the, but the best part is he stayed president. But then they basically just like limited his power. Yeah, and and he he basically was a lame duck president for the rest of his term. I think he had like what two years at that point, and he, he yeah. couldn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, I just imagine he's probably like they they probably give him this little you know that old school like the 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 stick and wheel toy and they're like stay in your room 
They gave him a a, a, <laughs> a fake Morse code kit. He's like, dee, 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 dee. and they're like, no one hears you, sir. <laughs> um, they gave him a fake advisor. Yeah. Just tell this man everything. Andrew Johnson came very close to be removed from office. Bill Clinton also impeached. Donald Trump was impeached as well twice during his term. So that covers all of our presidents who have been impeached historically. Again, none have been removed by the Senate, but it has gotten pretty close. And that's important to remember. Remember, impeachment does not mean the president is being removed. It is meaning he is being investigated for something. Yeah, impeachment. Something that he has done. Impeachment effectively just means that Congress, the House more specifically, feels as if there's a chance that the president may have committed a, a, a major crime. So if you hear impeachment, don't think that they're being removed because they're not. That's one of the things that most people in the public get wrong. Correct. Speaking of firing cabinet secretaries, what is the cabinet? Right. The cabinet uh, is important to the president. We, we, we were talking about um, being chief executive um, and what was the other one? Uh, administrator in chief. The president can't do everything and, and it not expected to do everything. So the president has to rely on, we were talking about his inner circle um, to help him do the daily duties of the president. Very early on in Washington's cabinet, he recognized that I'm just one guy. I know a good amount, but I don't know everything. And so even though it's not written into the Constitution, Washington sets this precedent really early on that in order to fulfill my job requirements and my, my duties, I need to surround myself with some people who know what they're doing and, and people who can advise me. And so Washington creates a cabinet, which initially only has these four offices of Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of War, which is now Defense. And the attorney general, and the attorney general is is the head of the Justice Department. But under Washington cabinet, it was him and these four other people who would meet often to talk about how things are going. And these cabinet secretaries are meant to advise the president uh, in certain areas of expertise that they can take on. And the important thing to understand about cabinet secretaries is unlike most of the bureaucracy, you actually name your cabinet secretaries. Yeah, each president will name their 15. So uh, fun fact, we, we start out with four. We're going to add 11 more throughout history just so we, we get that fact out of the way. Um, the president names his 15 every time we get a new president. Does it does it happen all that often, Crowder, that presidents rename if they get reelected? I'm, I'm, I'm not too familiar with that. You don't really hear about it as much. Well, it is relatively common for secretaries to leave to pursue other other things. Ultimately, it, it's a phrase that you need to know. It's called, you know, you're you're serving at, quote, the pleasure of the president. And at the end of the day, the president can fire you if, if they want to. It's not super common for the president to get rid of a cabinet secretary unless there is just this irreversible issue that's come up between them, like what you saw with Andrew Johnson, for example. But, you know, long story short, he gets it, a little bit of a pass because they weren't his cabinet officials. Yeah. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, cabinet secretaries serve at the pleasure of the president and the president can ultimately name or, you know, request. Usually you have them not necessarily getting fired, but you request their um, you, you request their resignation. Uh, right? Yeah. Right. So at, at the end of the day, 
a lot of cabinet secretaries get to leave under their own choice, even though it's not always necessarily their choice in, in private matters. It's also remember important to remember as well, just like Supreme Court justices, um, the cabinet positions also will go through a process where they have to be approved by the Senate, one of those checks and balances. Yep. All right. So it's important that you... You know, if you have a, a Senate that is with you, it's really easy to appoint people that go along with your party's lines. But, you know, sometimes if you have divided government, it makes it a little bit more difficult. Cabinets do have to pass the Senate's advice and consent role. But a, a lot of the times you get to name your cabinet. This is a good thing for the president in your honeymoon period. Yeah. Uh, and Hertzer, what is a honeymoon period since you're a little bit fresher into it in, in, in your in your own marriage? Well, the honeymoon <laughs> <laughs> the honeymoon period for the president is is those first 100 days where we're just trying to figure out what the president is going to do in his four years, right? We're trying to gauge on what kind of president he's going to be. We're not really mad or, or, or upset with anything that the president is doing. Um, we're just trying to see, you know, what kind of president he's going to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no official marking of this is the first hundred days or something like that. But generally speaking, that first hundred days of the presidency is seen as kind of that honeymoon period. And I would argue it's gotten shorter and shorter over time. But generally in that first hundred days, you want to try to get as much of your legislative agenda on the ground and running as possible, because very quickly after that first couple of honeymoon periods, you know, think of it like a marriage. You know, things are great for the first little bit, but then your wife starts yelling at you about this, that, and the other. And sometimes it's fair, but, you know, uh, in in terms of being president, the, the public is generally like, well, they're new to the job. They're doing fine. Nothing's wrong right now. But after the first couple months, a lot of the issues with the country start becoming your issues and not just somebody's issues that you're trying to solve. So speaking of getting things done. We're going to talk about how the president's powers have really expanded throughout history, because I think when we talked about the, the legislative branch, we, we really talked about how that was the important branch of the government. The founding fathers really put an emphasis on this has to be the most important branch. But over the last, what would you say, 100, 120 years? Yeah, um, the importance of the the role of the president has has really expanded, and I feel like most Americans feel like the executive is the most important branch nowadays. Yeah, and again, this is like when we were talking about public policy, the president gets a lot of blame and or celebration for things that are not really his job. I think about like gas prices or something like that. And there are obviously some things the president can do for gas prices, but oftentimes they get a lot of credit or uh, criticism based on the price of gas when in fact they don't necessarily have a huge role in that. But, you know, a lot of people do kind of recognize the president as, you know, the symbol for the country and fair or not, along with that comes a lot of criticism and or celebration over the things and how they're going in the country. So so let's take a look at some times where you see the power of the president grow. And I think the first real big historical example, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is Abraham Lincoln and his usage of the executive power during the Civil War. And we always talk about times of crisis. The Civil War was a time of crisis for the United States. We are literally dividing the country in half we are fighting against one another. 
And Lincoln is using his executive power to keep the Union together, calling troops to invade a part of the country, um, taking away rights from certain states. I think Maryland is is the most um, relevant example, since it's the closest state to us, of, of the president taking away the rights of the citizens because – we honestly didn't know what side Maryland was was on during the Civil War. And if if Maryland is part of the South, you know, Washington, D.C. was then in, in the heart of the South. And and so the capital of the United States is, is in Southern territory, which which Lincoln couldn't have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, criticisms of the of Lincoln at the time is that he was acting almost like a dictator or a king. Uh, with the amount of executive power that he was throwing around. And I think many historians today and, and most people today see Lincoln as one of the top presidents, if not the top president, for especially managing the crisis of the Civil War so effectively. But definitely people at the time, uh, many of his critics would have said along the lines that he was acting like a dictator by suspending rights for people, uh, taking on a lot of executive authority, you know, single-handedly, uh, bypassing Congress in certain circumstances if need be, all to try to successfully pull off the success of the North during the Civil War. Yeah, keeping the country together was his priority, and and he was going to use whatever he could to do that. I think it's fair to say that most presidents really moving forward, and some do it way more than others, presidents are going to continue to try to push the envelope on the amount of power that Congress is going to allow them to have and the judicial branch is going to allow them to have. And, and largely, those two branches have continuously allowed the president to take on more and more of these executive powers. One of the things that come to mind when I think about expanding presidential power is Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt is almost seen as the first imperial president. By now, we had greatly expanded with territories in Latin America and the, the Pacific, all over the world, uh, and, and and Roosevelt is the man behind it, and and that's no mistake. Is is Roosevelt made it a core piece of his agenda and his public persona to kind of be this imperialist, and he's also seen as a, a relatively good president historically. But I think a lot of people will say that his imperialist attitudes are kind of a little bit of a smudge on his reputation, his legacy. So, so we have that Roosevelt, but also another Roosevelt that really took his executive power um, and expanded it was, was FDR as well during the Great Depression, creating these executive groups that were designed to help ease the suffering of, of people during the Great Depression. He attempted to expand the Supreme Court. It, yep, it, yep. it did fail. Um, there, there's a time where the or the Supreme Court actually denied Roosevelt an expansion of power. But again, you see these times of, you know, even going back to the fact that he's serving four terms, right? That's an expansion of power. Up until this point, we had nobody ever try to do that. And he wants to stay as long as the country will have him. Yeah, absolutely. And And this goes back to our federalism episode is the power of the federal government versus the power of state governments and how that changed over time. FDR is one of the main people who starts bringing federal authority more and more into the daily lives of people. And at the time, I think he gets a large pass for doing that because his New Deal programs were generally seen as successful, though, yeah, as you mentioned, also pretty controversial at the time. Uh, a lot of people do fairly criticize him for expanding the office as much as he did. But between the Great Depression and 
World War II, Roosevelt was dealt quite the hand to try to respond, you know, kind of as a crisis manager of sorts. I'll argue that pretty much every president since Roosevelt has continued to expand their power, some more successfully than others. But one of the people who really successfully controlled Congress, pushed his power around, and greatly expanded the power of the presidency was Lyndon Baines Johnson. Yeah, we talked about Lyndon B. Johnson several times uh, here, especially with his Great Societies program uh, that he he pushed through. And we also talked about him when we talked about federalism and how he basically reigned back in, you know, the states and, and basically started to control legislation, control the state's institution of legislation, especially with the Civil Rights Act. Um, many states in the South um, did not want to play ball with the Civil Rights Act. So uh, he had to basically control the states moving forward. He had to control the states when it came to Voting Rights Act as well. So so Lyndon B. Johnson really extended his power through controlling policy in the different states uh, because the states did not want to play by his rules. Yeah, and beyond that, uh, you know, that was those were all domestic ideas. Lyndon Baines Johnson is also going to have a major quagmire in his hands with uh, Vietnam pretty early into his tenure as president. Uh, he's dealt this issue with the Gulf of Tonkin where there was a claim that North Vietnamese uh, ships had attacked U.S. ships. Uh, and that was basically the the point at which Johnson escalated our involvement in Vietnam from less than 2,000 advisors to over half a million troops in the next several years of his office. And a lot of this was given to him by the Congress with what's known as the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. In response to the crises, which may have not actually even happened uh, as they were reported in the Gulf of Tonkin, LBJ gets significant power to basically conduct a war. And again, it's worth noting that the United States has not formally declared war since World War II. But as some of you might know quite well, we've essentially been in some level of action, conflict, very carefully worded not to be war. But we've we've been involved in some form of policing. Policing, yeah, some some form of international disputes with military members, really ever since World War II. Yeah, yeah, you'll have that in Vietnam. You'll have it in uh, the Middle East in the the 1990s with the the uh, Gulf War or Desert Storm. Uh, you'll have it with George Bush after 9/11 and getting rid of terrorism. So you see that several times throughout history after LBJ. Yeah, and and perhaps a lot of these are extensions of the obvious power of commander-in-chief that the president has. But many of the new powers that you mentioned uh, have been granted to the president through the War Powers Act of 1973. And what the War Powers Resolution of 1973 was actually meant to do was maybe to kind of backtrack from LBJ a little bit to limit the president's authority to wage war by having several checks in place, such as within 48 hours of starting a conflict, the president has to get approval and so on and so forth. And President Nixon actually vetoed the measure initially. uh, But the idea of limiting the power of the president uh, in in his powers to conduct war uh, was actually overridden uh, through the War Powers Resolution in 1973. 
But, you know, it still gives a lot of discretion to the president to conduct executive actions uh, without having to officially declare war. Yeah, and you've seen, especially as warfare has changed over time, I know we're getting into like military tactics, but as you've seen military tactics change over time, we don't really have, like Crowder said, wars anymore. The president can send troops in for a special mission, and as long as they're out in 48 hours, he doesn't have to really specify what's going on. Yeah, it definitely gets, you know, it gets tricky. It gets into these constitutional questions of whether or not the president actually has the authority to do this, but... Congress has almost willingly at times given significant power to the president to conduct warfare. And I think a lot of it comes to the fact that something we discussed last last uh, episode, you know, Congress likes to punt on on difficult decisions. And if the president can get credit or blame for, you know, a military action instead of Congress, they're all for it. Correct. Speaking of other things that are potentially controversial and messy when it comes to executive authority is the good old executive order. Ooh, the executive order, or as, or as uh, SNL Schoolhouse Rocks likes to say, how politics are handled today. The executive order is, is nothing that's officially written into the Constitution, but it is something that courts have almost routinely uh, been willing to back up the president's power to do this. But the the executive order is a declaration that the president can make that essentially has the rule of law, at least temporarily. Uh, and, and it can do a wide number of things without exact approval from Congress. Yeah, you, you can bypass the whole legislative process. And, and for a president who has a split Congress, this is a very good way to get your public policy passed without too much controversy going through Congress. However, as Crowder said, the Supreme Court has the ability to override a lot of these things. Some things have been seen as controversial or unconstitutional. Yeah, I mean, you you obviously have some executive orders that most people are like not upset about, like creating national parks. Or a know, holiday. Or creating, yeah, everyone loves a day off of work. Correct. Um, <laughs> yes. We're waiting for our next one. Yes. Um, but, you know, there there are obviously some executive orders that are, that are highly questionable. Uh, one that comes to mind that's in, in very recent um, news is the student loan forgiveness program. President Biden, in an attempt to get things done quickly, you know, for better, for worse, bypassing Congress, essentially gave an executive order directing the Department of Education to forgive student loans. And ever since that, it's been hung up in courts and, you know, nothing's gone into effect and it's hard to know whether or not it ever will, because uh, currently it's it's stuck in litigation and the Supreme Court has put a hold on it until they can hear the case more specifically. Yeah. So Hertzler, what are your thoughts on the executive order? Do you think it's a handy tool or do you think it's an overstep by the president? I think it's an important tool for the president. I don't, I don't like presidents who use it all the time. I feel like it's one of those, again, if it's a, if it's a moment of crisis, that we need something passed. I think 100% the president has the the should have the job of of making hard decision. Like you said, Congress doesn't like to make hard decisions. So if they're not going to make it, somebody needs to. So as long as the 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 president is using it to the best interests of the people, I think by all means the president should be able to use the executive order. Yeah, and the executive order has been used increasingly uh, more and more over the years. And I think that deals a lot with the gridlock that we've seen in Congress. 
uh, either just divided government or just the Congress not able to agree with each other, regardless of political affiliation. This is a way to step around Congress and, and at least show that you're trying to get something done, even if you don't have a whole lot of uh, thought that it, it will work. Yeah, look, I'm trying to give you guys some help, but nobody wants to to play ball. You know, I would agree with you that the executive order is an important tool. And as I mentioned earlier, it's largely been supported by the judicial branch as something the president can do. And another thing to kind of point out about executive orders is ultimately the executive orders only last as long as the presidential term. You know, it's it's kind of this funny thing that, you know, some presidents can choose to keep the orders, you know, permanently. Uh, but it's, it's kind of this funny thing on January 20th when the new president gets sworn in, thanks to the 20th Amendment, um, which changed our lame duck session from ending in March to ending in January. But on January 20th, when the president comes in office, almost immediately they go and sit down and sign a bunch of executive orders that cancel previous executive orders from the office. And you kind of have this tennis match between, you know, Democrats and Republicans. When they come into office, they sign a bunch of executive orders to get rid of programs and, and orders that the previous president had had signed. So so the the role of the president is a lot more complex than a lot of people think. There's a lot more duties that they have to fulfill. There's a lot more people involved than a lot of people think. So the next time I think we vote for president, we we really should understand that it's not just one guy that we're, we're we're voting in. It's it's multiple people because he's not only coming in with with him, but he's coming in with his cabinet, his vice president, you know, his his Supreme Court justice picks. So it's important to to really analyze and to 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 understand that that the president is just not one guy. Thank you so much for everyone for tuning in. Uh, I just want to make a couple quick points before we let you go. Uh, the Gov Guys podcast is on TikTok and Instagram. Uh, if you would like to give us a follow, we put out little dumb videos now and again. Some of them are informative. Some of them are just us being stupid. But, you know, you got to mix it in. The good with the bad. It's about time for our Christmas special, so follow along. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it hurts or we'll sing the dreidel song again. No. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Sleigh Ride was stuck in my head earlier today. It's, it was the worst. And you never know. The Grinch might make an appearance. We don't know. We don't know what happens in these things. We'll have to see if Dan's busy. Yeah. <laughs> that That's Scrooge. I'm sorry. Nah, it's it's same idea. Well, but yeah, we're also on Amazon, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast, mostly. Yeah. Uh, and and thank you very much for all of you who have supported us this far and come and told us, uh, you know, you're doing a good job or or maybe maybe that one kid who's like, you guys suck, but, you know, you're you're all, you're all right. Um, you know, thank you very much to everybody who's listened to us so far. We're enjoying putting these episodes out. And I hope they've been helpful. All right. We'll see you all next time with the judicial branch. Take care, guys. Take care.